Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another beautiful starry night here in Tucson, Arizona. And we welcome you to Stewart Observatory. We also welcome those of you listening to us on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or watching via podcast on iTunes U, the University of Arizona page. Uh, before we introduce tonight's speaker, I hope that we were able to grab a flyer as you came in. Um, we only have, after tonight, two more Monday night talks, two weeks from now and then four weeks from now. All right, this is a, a, a very special lecture. Our speaker tonight received his bachelor's degree in astronomy from the University of Arizona back in 1957, okay? Yes, he came here in 1952. Back when that white dome that you're gonna go look through, that was, that was it, that was Stewart Observatory. None of, none of these buildings were here, it was just that building. And then he holds the distinction of receiving the first graduate degree from Stewart Observatory. He got a master's degree in 1959 uh, in astronomy. Uh, he has since worked, his name is Michael Chris. He has since worked for NASA, was involved in the space program, satellite tracking. Uh, he also went to Stanford and to Oxford, right, to study art and its connection with astronomy. And uh, for the last couple of decades, he's been in the Bay Area, College of San Mateo, where he was director of their planetarium there. And Michael Chris is now retired from College of San Mateo, and so he has moved back to Tucson. And uh, we have employed him this semester to teach the upper division history of astronomy class, which is offered to our majors and our minors. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to call upon Professor Michael Chris to give a talk on astronomy and the muses. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me all right? I'm an old guy. <laughs> That's what I realized listening to Tom. Um, yeah, things have changed around here. And um, I can't tell you how delighted I am to be here at the Stewart Observatory uh, on their faculty and teaching something that is very close to my heart uh, the, um, the social aspects, as it were, the humanities, as it was, the history of astronomy. My career started as a pimply-faced high school kid here. And now I've just lost my hair. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still a kid. Um, I have to tell you something about the genesis of tonight's talk, Astronomy and the Muses. When I was working for my master's degree, I was working on something that turned out, we didn't know it then, but it turned out to be related to black holes, a certain kind of a galaxy. And I, the research that I was doing and became my master's thesis was using the telescope which has been moved to Kitt Peak and now I understand has been retired as well. Uh, but in the dome, in the yellow dome, uh, that's where I spent <laughs> all of my evenings freezing to death in the winter. 
until I found an aviator suit I could plug in. <laughs> and um, I was photographing the spectra of, um, of these special kinds of galaxies. And when you photograph the spectrum, in this case, it was a piece of film, if you can imagine, the size of my thumbnail. So you had to, <laughs> you had to handle it in the dark room very carefully. You didn't put your thumbprint on it when you put it into the holder. And then you developed it and all that. But when it was dry the following day or two, I would have to measure the placement of the spectral lines because therein would lie the secret of what I was looking for. And the machine to do that, it, it looks like a microscope with a crank and the microscope moves across your little spectrum there and you read it and you write it down. And uh, the place where they had this machine, wait, is my time used up, Tom? Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, and the place where they had this machine was in the bowels of the physics chemistry building, which is still the chemistry building, except there's a newer one next to it. And there I would go, and I'd be down there, cavernous basement room. Um, and I'd be down there, you know, doing what I just said. Well, I found out they, there was a lot of storage stuff down there. And one of the things I found being stored there were 78 records. Now, there are some people who actually not just remember them, but probably broke a few in their lives. And I looked at these 78 records, and this is the 1950s, and I didn't know any of the songs. It turns out they were recorded around 1920-something. So I got a, a phonograph player, and I started playing them. Lively little tunes. I mean, they were great fun. And um, I only remember one song that I could tell you the title, Moonbeam Kisser for Me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I started to really like this music from the 20s. And why stop there? There's music from the 30s. And I wasn't that old at that time. Uh, Elvis Presley was popular, so I stopped short of that because that I could get on the radio. I was interested in anything that came before. And I never lost my interest in that. And so I have, quote, a collection, which is easy to get now because uh, there's, it's available all kinds of ways. Um, now this lecture. In listening to those songs, at some point it hit me that many of these popular songs had connections to astronomy. Uh, that is to say, they were inspired by some kind of astronomical theme. Uh, and uh, an easy example would be any song that has the words moon, June, croon. And there were lots of them. And, um, it, but of course, it's not just popular songs. There were other songs as well. Uh, from symphonic music and operatic music, which were inspired, or if not inspired, at least had astronomical connections. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to someday put it all together, 
hopefully get an audience. <laughs> and by the way, I want to thank my students who are here tonight. I saw a few. They come and listen to me twice a week. You'd think that'd be enough. <laughs> and probably it is, but they're here and I'm grateful. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to put together um, not a very heavy talk, but, a, but what I hope will be a very interesting to you talk um, about this connection that, as I saw it, between astronomy and popular culture and not so popular culture. And tonight is the night. <laughs> I can hardly wait to see how it's going to turn out. Um, Tom, should we go one level lower on light? And I don't know how to do it. Is that what this little hammer is for? <laughs> or maybe I'll wait for you. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Well, and, uh, Okay, I'm happy. So tonight, ladies and gentlemen, the world premiere of astronomy and the muses, you are there. Um, where do I point the uh, changer at? Where? Yeah, no, no, I want to change the slide. Anywhere. I'm, it changed. All right. <laughs> The, the Greeks, as you know, had nine muses, eight of which were connected with the arts, dance, drama, comedy, that. One, however, was not. One was connected with astronomy. And the name of that muse is Urania. And of course, the planet Uranus is named after that one. Um, now, all of these other, I have to tell you a side story. I don't have to, but I will. I won't have to. Um, uh, my students may know this, because I think I mentioned it in class. Uh, a little over a month ago, I was involved in a terrible car wreck. Somebody ran a, this is true, somebody ran a stop sign on Old Spanish Trail. And I was on Old Spanish Trail. The person was co coming into Spanish Trail, had a stop sign, and had stopped. So I did what you should do. I drove. And the person decided they simply had to cross the road at that exact moment. And they hit my car behind the driver's seat so hard that my car went into a spin and rolled over. That's right. It landed on its wheels. And when I realized I was still alive, and I didn't know at first, I got out of the car, nothing broken, a bit shaken up. I mean, I'm tough, but I'm not that tough. And I looked at the street that the guy had come from. 
and it's Melpemene, who's one of the muses. And I knew it was one of the muses, I simply didn't know which one. Not comedy, certainly. And I went home and looked it up. It's the muse of tragedy. Well, in spite of that, <laughs> my favorite muse is Urania. And here she is, as portrayed in, in what, some drawing, except I put the moon there for something, something for her to look at. <laughs> Astronomy and the muses, or specifically, let's say, music, goes back really to the Greeks. Um, Pythagoras, Pythagoras studied music, um, and he, he devised the system, harmonic system, well, say with a guitar. And if you take just one string on a guitar and put your finger down halfway, you're going to get a harmonic of the open string. And then if you cut that in half, you'll have yet another harmonic. And he discovered this. And he wrote a lot about music. And he had the idea, looking at the, he was an astronomer too, he was a philosopher. And he had the idea that the planets in their orbits going around, well, for him it would have been the Earth, right? Going around the Earth, he said, they move with different speeds. Well, indeed, all you have to do is look at the sky at night, and if you recognize the planets, you can see some change their position uh, more rapidly. Uh, by the way, I, last night I looked out, um, and there was Mars, and it's getting bright. And it, let's see, it was about 11 at night, and I was facing southeast, and it was maybe that high up in the sky. It was near uh, Spica, if you know uh, the stars and the constellations. And, it, and I know it was Mars because it's red, red, red. And it's going to get brighter and redder. So those of you who know Mars and those of you who don't, here's your chance. Go out, roughly 11, don't have to be accurate, southeast, about there in the sky, and you'll see it. it, it it's just going to glare at you. Well, Pythagoras had been studying the planets, and he saw that they moved with different speeds in the sky, and he figured they're probably giving out a music. Yes, giving out music. And their different speeds, like the vibrations on the string of the guitar, their different speeds in the heavens would determine the tone of the music. And together, all the planets, and they knew of five at that time, um, together, all of these planets would make a harmonious sound, which he called the music of the spheres, a term which has been used many times over for many purposes. The music of the spheres. And if you were gifted, if you were an enlightened person, you could hear that music. And you know what? People did. 
and I bet you could do if you listen really hard. Well, books have been written about this and the music of the spheres, and we're going to trace that idea a little bit more through the ages. Johannes Kepler, who lived when? Um, 1600, say, to round it off. 1600. So Columbus is 1500, so this is like 100 years later. So Johannes Kepler, who was an astronomer at that time, he came up with what's now called Kepler's Three Laws. Kepler believed in a divine geometry that uh, applied to the heavens. And over there in the upper uh, left, Kepler had the five regular solids, like a cube and a dodecahedron, tetrahedron, those are the regular solids in mathematics. And Kepler constructed, actually constructed what you see there out of like toothpicks, as it were. He constructed these five regular solids and he made them of such a size that the orbits of the planets going around, well, at that time they were starting to argue, going around the sun or going around the earth, but the sizes of the planets would fit exactly inside one of these five regular solids. And this was a divine geometry, and he was going to figure it out. Um, his second law, he came to the realization later, after that first diagram I just mentioned, Kepler came to the realization of what is now called his second law. He, he realized that the planets move around the sun in ellipses, exaggerated here on the right side. Uh, no planet has an elliptical orbit that is that elliptical, although comets might, but not planets. And um, an asteroid or two might as well. And he observed that when the planet was closest to the sun, it would move faster. And when it was further, it would slow down. So that it swept out an area over on the right side, the area labeled A. Let's say that's one month motion of a planet. But when the planet was further from the sun, over on the left side, it still says A for area. Notice the planet's moving slower, but the area it sweeps out in the same amount of time, one month, the area will still be the same. A is equal to A. And he discovered this, the law of areas. And so Kepler had this wonderful idea, sort of a mystical fellow he was, he had this wonderful idea that as the planet sped up and slowed down, it would be like moving your finger on a violin string up and down. You would be changing the tone that the planet gave out. And so he had in a book called The Harmony of the Worlds, which he published, and you're seeing a page from it, he had uh, the musical notes that they would give out at the different times in their orbits, depending upon whether they were near or far from the sun. So this is a powerful idea, this music of the sphere idea, and this tie-in between um, music theory 
and planetary motion. Now, of course, we don't talk that way today. We talk in other ways, which might sound crazy too, to, not with planets, but you know, talk about strings or something like that. Yeah, it might sound crazy. Um, well, Kepler was not crazy, although he was wrong. His mother, by the way, was tried for being a witch. I mean, these were the times he lived in, and he had to bail her out. And then there's this fellow. Not the painting. The fellow who wrote that. Wrote the music. Wrote the book. His name is Vincenzo Galilei. And he was fairly famous in his day. Uh, he was one of the inventors of opera in Florence. He also had a son who did rather well. <laughs> uh, Vincenzo and his son and others lived in the house that you see there. The house is in Pisa. And on that house, close up on the right, is a uh, marker, memorial marker, proclaiming that in this house, uh, in this house to the um, Vincenzo Galilei in biggest print. Anyway, to Vincenzo Galilei was born a son who uh, uh, born the great Galileo, the astronomer. Uh, but you see who gets the biggest billing in this plaque. But it is in Florence, and these are Italians, and music is very, very important. And we still have opera, God love it. And he, he was in at the very beginning. Now, the idea of music being of interest to astronomers continued, and uh, a few hundred years after this, We have this fellow you see drawn here. His name is um, William Herschel. He's German. He's a musician. Um, he's also an astronomer. And the King of England, who was George III, the same one we sent the Declaration of Independence to, that George III, uh, invited him, or somebody on his staff did, invited this Herschel to come to England to be a musician, a court musician, which he was. Now, the reason I have this poem here is because it was Herschel who found something using, by this time, a telescope, which turned out to be Uranus. And that is the first planet that was discovered that was not known course, you need a telescope to see, actually a pair of binoculars if you know where to look, but they didn't know where to look. You need a telescope to see it. And he had one, and he found it, and he named it, except he didn't name it Uranus. He named it Georgium Sidus, after King George III. Nobody liked that name. Well, George liked it, but... Nobody adopted the name, and when George died, it was all right, and, and they changed it to the name um, that everybody was calling it by that time. 
Uh, so here, John Keats uses this thrill that Herschel must have had when he first saw this new world. Then I felt like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. Here's a piece of music that uh, Herschel wrote. He wrote many pieces. Albert Einstein could have made a living as a violinist if it came to that. Uh, but of course, it didn't come to that. He found other things to do with his life. But he always played the violin. And here's a quote of what he said. The influence of music and the influence of uh, scientific research appeals to a part of the mind, the creative part of the mind, and they go together. They certainly did for Albert Einstein. So it makes sense, I believe, that when two spacecraft called Voyager 1, you're looking at that here, and Voyager 2 were launched, and that's in the 1970s, that's in the 1970s now. When they were launched, and Carl Sagan, uh, Cosmo started last night, so we'll give a tip of the hat to Carl Sagan. Um, had an, he was working on that Voyager project, and he had an idea. And the idea was to put a record, uh, like a phonograph record, a digital record, more like a, a CD, I suppose, um, on board. And there it is, you're looking at it. A record that someday, <laughs> 40,000 years from now, somebody will pick up, boy, I can imagine the day when it plops into the backyard and the little kid comes and says, Mommy, Daddy, look, look what came. And they looked at this picture, whatever it is. There it is. They looked at this picture, and they said, who's sending this smut into our backyard? Cover up the dirty parts. I don't know which one would be the dirty parts, but. Uh, uh, so inside this cover, and the cover is coded, it was hoped, so that somebody as intelligent as the designers, Sagan, and his wife, who's still alive, of course, um, were, were part of that design team, that if they were at least as smart as those as we are, or the Sagans, uh, they would be able to decode this. And they would uh, be able to play this and decode the signal. And uh, there's a great deal, whoop, wrong button, sorry. How do I get out of this, Tom? a trigger, pull it, pull the trigger, 
That's the bottom. Why don't I say it, Todd? Okay. Um, I won't do that again. <laughs> um, uh, the record. That's what the re- that was the cover for the record, and this is the record itself. And right now, this spacecraft and indeed uh, Voyager Two are well past Pluto. So they're on their way. I don't know where, but they're on their way. And what did they put on the record? Well, they had a committee to kind of you know discuss this and design. What would you put on the record? Well, they could put not just sounds. They could put um, visual information as well. No dirty pictures, though. And uh, here are some of the things that they put on that record. It's on the record. I didn't hear. Is that what it says? Then that's what it is. <laughs> I guess so. It's the sounds of Earth. So, you know, they, they got together. They must have had many interesting evenings deciding this. And they put that on. And they put on some musical selections, actually 100 musical selections, 100 being a round number. And uh, what would you put on? What music will you put on? Well, these are the first 11 by the rank of their vote. Let's play a few of them. on there because there's music in language and um, they decided that they would ask children from around the world to record a greeting that the child would decide on and say it and that's what went on and you're looking at some of the languages I should say that Carl Sagan's son and daughter um, did the English part which said uh, Welcome from the children of planet Earth. Anyway, let's, uh, here are some of them in their translations. There's the one in English at the bottom. Hello from the children of planet Earth. You can actually buy this record, I mean, for your collection, and, um, and listen to, to the recordings. Let's listen to some of them. Adanish Lushulmu, 
，西康朋友，您好，您吃饱未？有闲就来阮家坐哦。تحياتنا للأصدقاء في النجوم يا ليت يجمعنا الزمان. سلام. بولورانونت برجكت نوين يزركي ميكامازوچون نرن أنتي فوختون نر. نمشكر. بيشة شانتي هوك. ماي لاكنيا. قوي هو ما. زوج قوي. بينان جينهان فايلا. Milí přátelé, přejeme vám vše nejlepší. Hartelijke groeten aan iedereen. Well, is it to me that's darling and touching, and I do hope that at some time, I don't want to be morbid, but we may no longer be around. But somebody is going to listen to this. Let's talk about some specific astronomical objects. And the relationship with music, and we'll start off with the moon. Song when the young men are away and young women who love these young men think about them. I'll be 
It's light and gay I'll always think of you that way I'll find you in the morning sun And when the night is through I'll be looking at the moon But I'll be seeing In 1968, a very talented director named Stanley Kubrick took a Johann Strauss waltz and got this.
But let's move on from nearby objects to the stars. Of course, songs have been written about the stars. The stars will remember the night we said goodbye. The stars will remember. In this moment, when Cole Porter wanted to express the overpowering love that this character feels for another character, he looks to images of the stars. Strange teeth, but truly, when I'm Rogers and Hammerstein musical carousel. These two people have just met and are falling in love. Let's set the scene. There they are together, seated outside under a sky filled with stars and they start to think about what it all means. On a night like this, I start to wonder what life is all about. And I always say two heads are better than one to figure it out. I don't need you or anyone to help me. I got it figured out for myself. What are we? Just a couple of specks of nothing. Look up there. Why, you can't even count the stars in the sky. And the sky is so big the sea looks small. And two little people you and I, we don't count at all. Perhaps the most quintessential song about stars is this one here. We all learned this one as children. Or maybe the first time you heard a song about stars is when you went to see a film which had a little bug in it. Jiminy Cricket. 
desires will come been portrayed by two artists now. That's, I forgot I had this slide. Three artists. This is the one I want. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say it's alright. not only the sun that uh, might inspire music. <laughs> Pulsars, spinning neutron stars. Here's what they sound like. A slow one. you'll agree that this is the right connection that occurred in my mind when I thought about meteors. And then, of course, we have the planets. And when you say the planets, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the planets by Gustav Holtz. Oh, dear. That shouldn't have happened. Let me go back.
Now, as the Earth goes around the sun on a tilted axis, one effect are the changing of the seasons. And the seasons, let's start out with... My eyes look down at your lovely face, and I hold the world in my embrace. Younger than springtime are you, softer than starlight are you. Warmer than winds of June are the gentle lips you gave me, gayer than And springtime, of course, will be followed by summer. by summer. But as we all know, as I have found out in my own life, Fall will soon be at hand. And for that, we have September song. But it's a long, long while from May to December. And the days grow short When you reach September And I have lost one too And I walk a little lame And I haven't got time For the waiting game You know... The Earth has another motion. Besides going around the sun, it spins on its axis. And that, of course, produces day and night. And there are songs, of course, about the different times of the day. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. And I'd like to point out that Oklahoma is the current offering at the Moroni Theater here at the University of Arizona. And then comes the drama. Twilight time. Oh, Wind purple pellet 
day I'll hear you, my dear, at twilight time. Let's go to movies and see what they offer us. Obviously, science fiction. Some of this science fiction goes back a long, long time. I wonder if you've seen some of these films. I've seen them all, although not necessarily when they first came out. H.G. Wells wrote the script for this 1938 film called Things to Come. I remember seeing that. Boy, was I impressed. They had in it what they called the space gun. It was going to fire a capsule to the moon. Of course, in the capsule, everybody in the capsule would be smashed against the back of the capsule when the gun went off. But no mind that. It was the moon rocket. And finally, now you might think, what does this film with Betty Davis and Hans Conried, what does this film have to do with astronomy? And the answer is absolutely nothing. <laughs> but it has an ending that I've never forgotten, a, an iconic ending about happiness. We can talk about your child. Our child. Thank you. And will you be happy, Charlotte? Oh, Jerry, don't let us for the moon. We have the stars. opera mentioning astronomical items. Richard Wagner in Tannhäuser, uh, they worship the evening star, Venus. Oh, do mine holder, Abendstern, oh, you, my dear evening star. leave out the back of this. <laughs> Thank you. Let's not leave out symphony. And I have, well, what might be rather obvious, learned it as a child,
and written a little more later than that by Ralph Vaughan Williams for a television program about Scott going to the Antarctic where he lost his life. What you see there is a display of the Australis, the Aurora Australis, which are caused by particles from the sun shot out into space and some reaching the earth and interacting with the atoms in our upper atmosphere. This being the last picture taken of that doomed exposition, expedition when they were at the South Pole only to find that the Norwegians had gotten there a month before. And I mustn't leave out When I was younger, one of my favorite science fiction authors, well, I had two, Ray Bradbury, and there's a great um, exhibition of Bradbury's works over in the Special Collections uh, exhibit room here at the U of A, right next to the library. Uh, the other one I liked was Robert Heinlein. And in the story called The Green Hills of Earth, he spoke about a space troubadour named Riesling. Riesling had been bumming around space for most of his life. And now all he wanted to do was to go home, to go back to Earth. He was blind by this time, and he would be able to hook rides on different spaceships that got him closer and closer to Earth. At this particular point in the story, he is on the moon. Only one more jump to go, 
and he'll be home. And he's writing a ballad that he cannot quite find the words to finish with. And then he gets a ride on a rocket and its nuclear reaction malfunctions and Rieslings goes into the reactor room which is too hot for anyone else and he's willing to sacrifice himself. And as he moves the rods around in the reactor room, he says on his microphone, take this down. I finally have the final words of my ballad. And when Sally Ride, astronaut, was taken in this picture here, looking down on the cool green hills of Earth, I thought of this story that I had read oh so long ago and made this slide for this talk. Finally, let's look at two pieces of art. This one by William Blake. God creating the universe, the start of it all. And this one by Kazimir Malyevich, a Russian, almost Soviet era artist who paints the face of God in this picture. And you know, with modern theories of the fate of our universe, this may be, oh, oh, the effect was good, here it is. As the universe expands and the stars and the galaxies burn out, Eventually, unless we have the big crunch, of course, we will end up with the painting by Kazimir Majevich. And so we come to the end of this meandering of astronomy and the muses, and in the tradition of George M. Cohan, who always thanked his audience in a certain way, I thank you.